Where else can we go to find the words of eternal life? Nowhere else but the Word of God. And that is where we'll turn our attention to now. I can't think of a more appropriate song to lead us into uh, uh, the text we'll be revisiting this morning. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. I know Pastor Justin really uh, introduced this text last week. Uh, and so we're going to... Um, to dive in to actually exposit the text uh, this morning. I'm going to encourage you, just like he did last week, that this, uh, this passage before us this morning is going to be a labor. It's going to involve us engaging our hearts and minds with the Word of God, as every Sunday morning does. But this is a difficult text. I told Justin this week, I don't know why, that maybe it's just because <laughs> we had a new baby, but this is maybe top five, top ten hardest text for me uh, to preach that I have uh, gone through my life. So I ask for your grace and I ask uh, for clarity from, uh, from, from God's Word that we would be uh, engaged with it. And yet, we know that doctrine is important, isn't it? We cannot afford uh, to miss this. And so if you've got to shake it out, right, if you feel yourself not paying attention, you've got to give yourself a little slap on the cheek uh, to help. That's just what I do. Maybe you do something else, uh, then you go ahead and do that. But we need to be engaged with God's Word this morning, uh, and we need to work to that end, okay? All right, if you found yourself in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, then you can stand with me through your honor reading God's Word together. Um, we're almost done, I promise. Uh, at least just about 10 to 15 more sermons from 1 Thessalonians and we'll be, no, I'm kidding. Uh, just a couple more and we'll be done. Uh, but 19 through 22 is where we found ourselves this morning. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we do thank you that you've been pleased to meet with us already this morning. We thank you for the word that has been sung, prayed, read, and seen. We thank you that it is by these means that you strengthen your people. Father, we ask that even now you'd be pleased to take this word and that you would impress it upon our hearts. Would you enlighten our eyes? Would you illuminate our minds help us not just to grasp the truths found within your holy word, but impress them so deep upon our heart that the transformative work that you desire might take place in us more and more. Father, we, um, we know that you know our frailty, that you know our propensity to be distracted, that you know the weakness of this preacher. But Lord, we, we know your strength. We know your power. Visit us now. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay. Uh, so again, we began with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22 last week. And we really uh, unpacked two words, didn't we? Spirit and prophecies. Uh, and as an introduction to this passage, we reviewed and examined the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God of God, yet a distinct person. Holy Spirit doing the work of applying all that Jesus accomplished to the life of believers. Then we considered prophecies. For in order for us to rightly apply this in our own day and age, it's necessary 
to come to some sort of decision about whether prophecies, as Paul is using this term here, refers to something different than how we see prophecy defined in the Old Testament. That is the declaration of the Lord speaking directly to and through the prophet, being moved by the Holy Spirit to declare the very word of God. Is there something different than that that continues in our own day? Or is that prophecy a gift that no longer is necessary because of the finality and the sufficiency of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the scriptures? We argued for the latter, and it's from that viewpoint this morning, from uh, that area from which I will preach this passage. Uh, the big idea of our passage this morning is pretty simple. It is hold fast to the word of God. Uh, that's the big idea we'll be considering this morning. Hold fast to the word of God. So we're going to be considering this in its two presented parts to us. First, we're going to start with the negative warning, which is do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. And then we'll move on to the positive warning, uh, that is test all things, hold fast what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. These are really two sides of the same coin. It's important to understand, as I said last week, that Paul's moving from really general statements to more specific statements. So he says, do not quench the spirit, but more specifically, do not despise prophecy. Test all things, but more specifically, hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. So let's consider these now in greater detail. And we start with this uh, first exhortation here, and that is do not despise God's word. Do not despise God's word. Now, we're all uh, hopefully Southern Baptists here, right? In this uh, Sunday morning, we're here. We've got most of our Bibles open. We're, we're here. Why would we need to be told not to despise God's word? Obviously, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Well, let's dive down deep into it. First, let's look at the first reason why we don't need to despise God's word, and that is we do not despise God's word because it quenches the spirit. Despising God's word quenches the Spirit. Now, how do we see that in this text? Well, uh, hopefully you'll see the correlation between despising prophecies and despising God's Word because it quenches the Spirit. Let's start by thinking about this. The Holy Spirit is the agent of divine revelation. The Holy Spirit is the agent of divine revelation. So we have don't, spy, don't despise God's Word because it quenches the Spirit. And more specifically, we're looking in the first heading that the Holy Spirit is the divine agent of divine revelation. We think about what Brother Corey just read for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right? The apostles and, and prophets of the first century, they received revelation from God by his spirit, right? So that Paul can say in verse 12 and 13, now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak. So they were spoken to the Corinthians and they're spoken today to us at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. The Spirit is the agent of divine revelation. And this is something that's not just true in the New Testament, something that's always been true. 
Uh, Peter wrote in his first epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he says, Of this salvation the, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the Spirit's been doing this work even in the Old Testament and in the New. Who was it that was revealing these things to and through the prophets it was the spirit of Christ the Holy Spirit Jesus himself we know John 14 from last week but Jesus himself explained this to his chosen apostles in John chapter 15 verse 26 where he says but when the helper comes whom I shall send to you from the father that paraclete that helper being the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will testify of me about Jesus. He'll testify of Christ. So when the spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into all truth, John 14. But if you remember right, the apostles don't even really get it quite yet until the spirit comes. Uh, Yet they profess that Jesus is the son of God, the, the Christ. Yet Jesus had to very clearly and consistently explain to them, I'm going to suffer. And they do not see that until the spirit reveals it to them, teaching them guiding them into all truth. The Spirit is the agent of divine revelation. I want us to notice two things before we move on here. And first is the primary content of the revelation of the Holy Spirit is and has always been Jesus Christ. That is what the primary content of the Holy Spirit revelation is. It's been Jesus Christ. The content has always been Christ. What was revealed in the Old Testament through types and shadows, that mystery that was hidden for ages, has now been revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, And then look at Ephesians chapter 3 verse 5. That tells us, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. That's the second thing we see. Not only has the content always been Jesus Christ, but the apostles and prophets were the human agents of this divine revelation about Jesus Christ. Okay, I want you to, it's very important that we understand this doctrinally, that we get this understanding of the Holy Spirit right. The apostles and prophets, they were the human agents of the divine revelation of Jesus Christ. That's true in the Old Testament, and it's certainly true after. Being revealed to or through the apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So just to recap, because I know we just went through uh, at least a a full six weeks of uh, seminary study on the Holy Spirit. Let me summarize. The Holy Spirit is the agent of divine revelation. He's the revealer of the mind of Christ. He's the enlightener of the hearts, the illuminator who brings the people of God to an understanding of the truth. The primary content of revelation is always and has always been Jesus Christ, the salvation of the glory of God in Christ Jesus, and the human agents were the apostles and prophets. And so if this is all true then, to despise prophecies or God's word of revelation is to despise the Holy Spirit and his work. To despise the prophecy is to despise the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're coming to the conclusion of here. Prophecies, listen to me, prophecies, we have to understand this in our culture because our culture propagates the opposite. Prophecies are not merely suggestions for how to do something. Prophecies aren't 
a magic ball that tells you when something is going to happen. Prophecies, they were nothing short of messages from the king about the king to the king's people. Uh, This message is not to be despised. The Holy Spirit is not to be ignored. And now before we press on, let's look at the actual text, what the text tells us in the command, and that is to not quench the Holy Spirit, right? The the Spirit uh, is not to be quenched. Let me clarify something here. Uh, To quench the Spirit, that's metaphorical language, okay? It means, quenching means to extinguish something, as in to extinguish a fire, to put out a fire literally is what it means. Now this does not show us some weakness or some inability in the Holy Spirit. And and we've got to see that. Because there might be a temptation for us to look at this verse and say, don't quench the Holy Spirit, and and think in our minds, wow, I can can quench the Holy Spirit? Like, I I can disable his work? I can stop him? He wants to do something, and I have the power to overcome him? Well, okay, so then what does that mean, then, to quench the Spirit? Well, you've heard me use the illustration analogy of two ditches often because I feel like the Christian life is so easy for us to fall on one of two ditches. I want to look at two ditches on how we can understand that text. Uh, What does this mean? Let's not fall into one of these two ditches. The first ditch would be believing that the Holy Spirit is unable to do anything that the Holy Spirit wills to do. That's the first ditch. We certainly can't believe that, can we? That the Holy Spirit is unable to do anything that the Holy Spirit wills to do. Why? Because who is the Holy Spirit? He is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And God does whatever he pleases. And if you hold a view other than that, you have an incorrect view of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can no more be extinguished or suppressed than God the Father or the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot attribute to him any impotency, for he is omnipotent. We should not fear that the Holy Spirit will fail in his work of applying Christ's work of redemption any more than we should fear that Christ failed to accomplish redemption, or any more that we should fear the Father's plan for redemption will not come to pass. So that's one ditch we can't fall into. We cannot certainly believe the Holy Spirit is unable to do anything that the Holy Spirit does. But there's another ditch we can fall into. We can overcorrect here, and that is believing that the Holy Spirit can't, in some sense, be quenched. The Holy Spirit can't, in some sense, be quenched. We can certainly believe that, and I believe that would be to overcorrect here. Making this mean nothing, in other words, because of our theology. Is there a tension here? Yes. Is there a contradiction here? Absolutely not. We can, and hear this, we can provoke the Holy Spirit to withdraw his sensible influence, power, and blessing in our lives. Okay? We can. That is why Paul warns here not to quench the Holy Spirit. Uh, One fantastic early 19th century pastor by the name of Octavius Winslow who wrote phenomenal works, he put it like this. I want you to pay attention to this. He says, uh, properly, the spirit cannot be grieved, cannot be quenched, cannot be resisted because he's not a creature, though a person. To believe the contrary would to be invest the Holy Spirit of God with such attributes as would be incompatible with his divine glory and his infinite perfections. 
such as belong only to a weak, sinful, finite creature. But metaphorically, to grieve the spirit or to quench the spirit is to disregard his voice, oppose his influence, and slight his kind, loving, and tender nature, and thus cause a withdrawment from the soul, in some cases temporary, in others eternal, of his presence, influence, and blessing. The consequence of quenching the spirit is grave, and it should be taken seriously. So let's look a little bit more about this. To despise God's word, to quench the spirit, is therefore to cause a declension in grace. To cause a declension in grace. It's to cause a declining in the very means by which we are being saved. And I want you to hear this. You guys recognize we are saved through means, right? You know that? We're not saved by means, but we are saved through means. It's important for us to recognize this. The 1689 London Baptist Confession puts it like this in the third chapter of God's decree. They said, as God hath appointed the elect, that is those who will know Christ, the saved, unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. He is actually purposed and foreordained to use means, and that's his plan. That's how you will be saved, through means. Now, do you want to quench that? I don't think so, right? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who accomplishes that means. Listen, God has ordained the means by which we receive these saving graces. Follow me now. We're not talking about common grace. We're talking about saving grace. That which affects our spiritual growth, our growing in holiness, our sanctification. He has ordained the how by which we are to receive these saving graces. You know our sanctification just doesn't happen accidentally, right? Over time. We just don't accidentally grow as Christians any more than your body just, you know, like gets energy. Like you can skip three or four days worth of meals and just wake up feeling fantastic. Uh, We know that when it comes to the physical. And yet God has chosen and communicated the means, the how, by which he will grow or sanctify his people. And the means are simple. It's his word and his spirit. So he is ordained to work through weak preachers like myself in order to proclaim the word of God powerfully and to feed the people of God. He's ordained that we sing God's word to one another so we might be strengthened and built up. He's ordained that we might read and study God's word, that we should speak the gospel to one another continuously, pointing one another to the glorious Christ. The Spirit works by these means to quicken and strengthen us unto saving grace. Now, let's just think about this. What will then happen if you despise his word? If you ignore his means for growing you in Christ? Well, to answer that question, simply ask yourself, what would happen if you stopped eating? What would happen? The word is the primary means by which the Holy Spirit builds up the church of God. And let me ask you, why in the world do you think the church in America is so weak? I mean, listen, we could come up with all sorts of reasons, but I'll tell you why. Uh, Half a century ago, if not much earlier, evangelical pastors specifically stopped feeding their sheep meat and started giving them milk. Why? Because meat's less offensive to goats. 
You want to grow a church? So they're told. You want a bigger farm? Well, there's only so many sheep that are going to come. Don't exclude all the other farm animals. And is this not still what's happening this very day? So the sheep are starving because we went from meat to milk to water. It is a Christless Christianity that is propagated as food. And friends, it's plastic fruit. There's no nutrition in it whatsoever. And so we wonder why the church looks so much like the world. It's because we quench the spirit. The word and the entire counsel of God has been so despised in our day. Even this morning, in many evangelical churches, a Christless word will be offered to a starving flock. And it's heartbreaking. So maybe you've been wondering, okay, why in the world would you take such time to expound four verses that we've been in 1 Thessalonians for, for five to eight months now? Well, friends, it's because we're starving flock and we need the word of God. We will take our time to dissect it, to go through it, so that we can understand it. We don't want to quench the spirit. Okay, let's get back to the point. To despise prophecy, to despise God's word, is to reject and to reject contentiously the primary means of grace. Do we see that? It's to reject the very means by which God has chosen and ordained to build up his church. Let me ask you. How will the people of God rejoice always if they've quenched the comforter who comforts their hearts with the gospel of Christ? How will the people of God pray without ceasing if they've quenched the spirit of adoption who assures them that they can go to the throne of their heavenly father? How will the people of God give thanks in all circumstances if they've quenched the spirit of Christ who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? Listen, we talked last week about the gravity of the warning as I considered and thought about this. What is the gravity? What's the risk here of quenching the spirit? Well, friends, it's this. It, quenching the spirit will only result in dimness or darkness. I want you to pay close attention to that. The result of this will only be in dimness or darkness. I'm using that metaphorically, of course, but it, it will result in a declension of grace that looks like either falling away or eternal death. To despise the spirit-inspired word, friends, is to refuse to eat. It's to starve ourselves of the very means by which we are fed. In the elect, in those who are truly saved by God, it will look like a diminishment of grace and a dimness of the light that is supposed to be shining out from us. It leads to a hardening of heart and an insensitivity to the things of God. In others... It is the loss of hope. Where, where any temporary benefit of sharing in the Holy Spirit in the end is only evidence of an unconverted nature. As Winslow put it, here's, here's the difference in how this carries out between the regenerate, the saved, and the, the unregenerate, the non-saved. As Winslow put it, he says, in the case of the regenerate, the withdrawal of the Spirit on being grieved, listen, this is key, is for a season only. So, so hear me, true Christians cannot continually go on quenching the spirit. Truly regenerate Christians will not continue to reject the means of grace. In that of the finally impenitent and unbelieving, the hushing of his voice, speaking to them in conscience, in providence, and in his word, is the giving of them up forever. 
And that should, if you're one of those right now that knows that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, has been convicting you through the word of God, and you are consistently quenching the spirit of God, that should terrify you. That's why we want to be sensitive to that. We want to respond to the Holy Spirit's voice as he speaks through the word of God, as we hear God's word speak. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecy. Do you see what's at risk here? Dimness or darkness. Neither one of those is very good. Paul also offers an exhortation, though. Look what he says. He says, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. In other words, he says, discern between God's revelation and a counterfeit. This is our charge here. We are to discern between God's revelation and a counterfeit, discern between the two. Now remember, what's in view here is still prophecy. Uh, Really, he's talking about test all prophecy. It's not test everything generally speaking. Remember, he's still talking about prophecy. We know that uh, because there's actually a connection here in the Greek that's just not really translated in the English versions. They are connected. He says, test all prophecy, hold fast to the good prophecy, hold far away the evil prophecy. Uh, There's a major flaw as it's shown in the English here. Paul's actually drawing a strong contrast between these two messages purposely. He's not simply saying, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. The verbs here are actually built on the same root. He's saying, hold fast what is good, hold away every form of evil. As Jeffrey Wyma put it, he said, uh, the two verbs used here, both having the same root and differing only in a prefix, are strong and express wholehearted acceptance of prophecy that is judged good and absolute rejection of prophecy deemed evil. This is false or true discern between the two. If it's false, guess what? It's evil. If it's good, hold fast for it's the word of God. Why? Well, I know this is going to be a brilliant point that's going to shock you, but it's because the good is really good. (laughs) Simply that. The good, holding fast to the good, is because the good is really good. The good is worth discerning and holding fast to. It's the very words of God for the upbuilding, the encouragement, and the consolation of the church. It's the word of Christ that dwells in our hearts richly and teaches us how to live godly lives. We test because the good is invaluable. It's not just good, it's really good. Well, and also because the evil, it's not just evil, it's really evil. The evil is really evil. I want you to hear this because many people, when they talk about some sort of second level of prophecy, they, they, just, they say, well, if it's false, then it's just not helpful for you. Friends, claiming something that's the word of God that just turns out not to be very helpful for you is evil. It's not just unhelpful advice. It's a false word. It's a word that claims the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's a word from man. It's a word that creates confidence in man instead of a fear of God. It's a word that offers hope where there is none and brings hopelessness where there is every reason for hope. This is an evil word. Did you notice something in our text here? The the good here is singular, but the evil comes in various forms. 
Uh, the good here is kind of like a, the laser-focused light of the gospel that, that casts through a prism. And, and so it distributes all sorts of incredible colors. You can look at justification. You can look at adoption. You consider things like election or effectual calling. All these wonderful various truths, but they all flow from the stream of one gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. One truth. The good is singular. Evil, on the other hand, avails itself of many voices. It's why we must abstain from every form of evil, whatever it is. Whether it's the gospel that promises you your best life now or a prophetic word that says once you've prayed, you're always saved. Whether it's the message of easy believism that encourages you to serve God and mammon or a word that promotes self-righteousness. Evil takes various forms and the reality is, church family, there is nothing in between. When we're dealing with prophecy, we've got good that's really good, and we've got evil that's really evil. There's nothing in between. All prophetic words are either good or evil. If it's God's word, it's a feast for our souls. Right? If it's a false word, it's plastic fruit that deceives us into believing we're eating something when we're dying slowly of starvation. One claims to speak the very words of God. They either speak the good or propagate the various forms of evil. Do you see why we can't get this wrong now? We need to understand how to tell the difference between these prophecies. So for the rest of the sermon, I'm just going to attempt to get very practical with you. But, but i got to establish something first, and that is there is a continuing need. Right? So if I've argued that prophecies have ceased, which has been our viewpoint, right? we no longer need to discern between prophecies. We have the final revelation of God. We lack nothing. Then we certainly can't take this verse and apply it in some way to say that we need to judge the good and the evil that's in here. That, that's not how we need to apply this verse. No, this is good. There is no pure food in the world for your soul other than this, the word of God. But there is an important analogy uh, between the prophets of old and the gospel ministers of the post-apostolic era. Listen, the Holy Spirit's work of illumination, he is the agent of illumination in my heart and in my mind. He works in a similar way to the Holy Spirit's work of revelation in the heart and the mind of an apostle and prophet. I want to say that again because it's very important for us to understand. The Holy Spirit's work of illumination, which is the work he does in bringing to light the, the gospel, the word of God in our hearts and minds, it is very similar to his work of revelation that he brought to the hearts and minds of the apostles. See, the Holy Spirit illuminates your mind and heart so you can understand. The spirit, the word, and the mind, they're all involved in both cases. And we cannot confuse the, the modes of operation, right, the two. But we've got to see the analogy between the two. So let me clarify, the apostles and prophets, they spoke the very word of God, right? When the apostle Paul wrote, do not quench the spirit, God himself was writing, do not quench the spirit. These words are infallible and perfect, even while being fully human and fully divine. Its authority is absolute. We must receive it as God's direct revelation to his people. On the other hand, hear this. This sermon, which I present to you, is a result of my labor of illumination that the Holy Spirit has been working in my head and in my heart to prepare this message. To the extent that the Holy Spirit has enlightened my eyes and this exposition is accurate, this word is an authoritative word. 
Did you hear that? To the extent that I am rightly expounding this text, whether you like the way I'm communicating it or not, whether I'm using enough stories, illustrations, this is God's word. So therefore, to despise it is to quench the spirit. The authority of this sermon, it does not lie in its presentation or or, or the fanciness of the preacher. It lies in the word itself. See, the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit did not stop guiding believers after the passing of the apostles and prophets. The Holy Spirit was not like, okay, I'm done now, heading back up to where Jesus is. You guys figure it out on your own. No, the Holy Spirit continues to guide the church into a deeper understanding, a better understanding of things throughout church history through his work of illumination. So the Holy Spirit has empowered men like Arrhenius, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Owen, Bunyan, Edwards, and many, many, many others. That's the Holy Spirit's work. And it's just interesting to me to say the pride in our day to come to this word and say, you know what? Just me, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit, we're going to figure this thing out. The Holy Spirit's been doing that for 2,000 years. You're just going to ignore everything he's done from everyone else so you can start from scratch? We have a wealth of knowledge in our day. We have more knowledge right now than has ever been had. Is it inspired? No. But illuminated by the Spirit of God? Yes. See, the Holy Spirit continues to work. Prophecies has ceased, but not the Holy Spirit. He continues to empower and enlighten those called to teach and preach. I don't speak an infallible word of direct revelation But to the extent that my exposition is accurate, I speak with divine authority. We are to expound God's word for God's people, and God's people are to hold fast to this word. So, okay, let's apply it together. What's the application here? Well, if we're going to apply this verse rightly, we have to understand that this is an exhortation to listen to the message, to the prophet, and say... Yes, this man speaks the very word of God. We should receive it and hold fast to it. Or to say, no, this man does not. Away. That's the application. The application of this verse is weighing the man of God and his message. So this should be fun, right? Follow him as he follows Christ. Does a preacher rightly divide God's word? Does he preach and teach the truth? This is not about whether a preacher misspeaks or misapplies or makes really bad jokes in the midst of a sermon. This is broader than that. It's about the heart of the message. Is he proclaiming the word of God or is he proclaiming his opinions? Is he proclaiming Christ or is he proclaiming a counterfeit? Is he preaching salvation by Christ through faith alone, by grace alone, as scripture proclaims, or is he tempting people to build their house upon sand? We will still need to test the message of the minister, much like the Thessalonians were to test the message of the prophet. It still applies. And so, with a deep breath, I offer these three tests from the scripture themselves. How do we weigh the man and his message? Well, first, does it align with the goal of revelation? Does the man and his message align with the goal of revelation? Well, of course, we're going to have to ask then, what is the goal of revelation? Well, uh, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 3, look what it says. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Edification, exhortation, comfort. It's for the building up of the church. And so a general test on whether or not a prophecy, a word, is good or evil is, does it build up the church? And listen, I'm not talking about numbers. 
We gotta have a firm understanding of what it means to build up the church, don't we? What does it look like? Well, Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 and 14 gives us a tremendous picture of what a church that's built up looks like. Let's examine that together. He says, and he gave, he himself gave some to the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the, there it is, edifying of the body of Christ. So you have the word given to build up the church, to equip the saints for the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So what does it look like to build up the church? It's to increase the unity of faith. And listen to me, this is not unity that's built on a playlist of songs that you like, a unity build up on social status, unity build up on hobbies or just people that are a lot like me. Questions we need to ask. In fact, there's a litany of questions and this would be a good time to announce that you can go on graygables.info and look and see all these questions listed with all the notes for our sermons. But questions are, does it increase the knowledge of the Son of God? Does the message and the messenger increase the knowledge of the Son of God? Does it promote maturity? Does it promote Christ's likeness in the Christian and Christ's dependence in the body? Does it equip the saints for every member ministry? Does it equip the saints to identify and refute false doctrine? It's a litany of questions you can ask as you listen to the proclamation of the message. So first, does it align with the goal of Revelation? Second, does it agree with the apostolic teaching? Now this is, we know this, right? This is foundational, it's basic. This was true when, when there were actual prophets still speaking direct revelation as it is today with a fallible word being, uh, uh, being presented. We know that the word of God has to align with the teaching of the apostles and prophets in the word of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Okay, in other word, if he is a prophet, Go look at the words that are written and they will say, yes, this is God's holy word. We encourage this here. I want you to Berean me, okay? If you know what that is, that means when I speak God's word, I'm proclaiming to speak God's word, come to me, test me, point out anything you see that's false that I'm uh, proclaiming so that we can get this right. It's foundational. The man and the message, if we're not to despise prophecy, it must agree with apostolic teaching. Finally, and this one's a tough one to swallow, but it's true. A final test is the character of the messenger. A final test of weighing the man of God and his message is the character of the messenger. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says, you will know them, how? By their fruits. Or this really old Christian treaty that was written toward the end of the first century put it this way. Not everyone that speaks in the spirit is a prophet, but only if they have the behavior of the Lord. And every prophet who teaches the truth and does not practice it is a false prophet. So these are the tests. These are the tests, the way the man of God and his message. But I need to offer you one more thing before we close. I wanna give you two ways that we know we can hone our skills and to be able to apply these things. How do we, how do we know we can become good at seeing whether the, 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 the 
Revelation is aligned with the goal of, or the, the message is aligned with the goal of Revelation, whether it agrees with apostolic teaching, whether we're, we're looking for the right character of the messenger. How do we know? Well, the first is obedience. Listen to me. God's word always requires a response. Always. It's obedience. We are to respond to the preached word of God with belief. We are to believe his word so that our hearts, our minds, and our hands are transformed. God's word always comes to teach, reprove, correct, and train in righteousness so that we may be complete. Ignoring this purpose of God's word, ignoring the purpose of obedience as God's word is as preached is to despise it. So, so hear me, I want you to hear what I'm saying here. Week after week, if you come and you hear God's word and you say, man, Pastor Cody, that was a nice sermon. I really, really appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming to me and saying that. It's very nice of you to say. Maybe you even really believe that in your heart. But friends, if you walk out the door and it's got no impact on your life whatsoever, you are quenching the spirit by despising God's word. It will produce obedience in you. <laughs> When God's word says we are new creatures in Christ, we either labor to cultivate the Christian characteristics that scripture tells us to have, or we don't. Listen, Christian, if we do not respond to God's word with obedience, we are despising that word. Secondly, and lastly, we need to respond with obedience, but we also need to constantly expose ourselves to truth constantly expose ourselves to truth. I know most of you are familiar with this, but when you want to identify a counterfeit, what do you do? It's not by looking at the counterfeit that helps you better identify it, but it's exposure to the original. We need exposure to God's word if we are to be a discerning people. Romans 12, 2 tells us, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Holding fast to the good equips us to identify and hold fast to the good. I know that's circular reasoning, but it's true. We need our minds renewed by God's word to better distinguish between good and evil. By reason of use, practice makes better. What is going to say practice makes perfect there, but let's just settle with practice makes better. We must have our powers of discernment trained. We must be a people who spend more time listening to the voice of our shepherd than to any other voice. Do you want to discern the good from every form of evil? You have to get to know the voice of your king. And I'm not talking about some still small voice that mystically speaks to you. I'm talking about the words of the king that are written in God's word, his Bible. Let me just take that and make it slightly more specific and then we're in, we're done. Philippians chapter four, verses eight and nine is a text we probably know very well, right? Uh, Paul writes, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, med here's the command, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. So most people are familiar with that verse, of course, but I'm going to ask you, what's truer than Christ? Meditate on him and you will be better able to identify what is false. 
What is more noble than Christ? Think on him and you will meditate and be able to better identify that which is a counterfeit. Who is more just than Christ? More pure, more lovely, or of better report, more virtuous or praiseworthy. Jesus is the ultimate test. Does the message exalt and compel us to trust him more? Does it increase our affections for him? Does it make the world and all that it has to offer seem like trash compared to the glorious riches that are ours in Christ? Or does it distract from his glory as an attempt to make us more self-sufficient? Does it distract to satisfy us with the vanity fair of this world? Church family, we cannot afford to quench the spirit or despise his word. We must learn to discern and to obey our shepherd. My prayer is that the Lord would make us a discerning people, that you would take these things that you've learned today and apply them to this messenger and this message on a continual basis. It's what worship is. Worship is not just sitting down, listening to a pastor preach and going, hmm, that was entertaining. That was good. I can go on the rest of my day. It's not worship. That, that's tickets to a show. That's what it is. Worship is engaging your hearts and mind with the word of God and allowing the word of God to produce obedience into you, to take away and say, how can I better apply and think on this message? That's what worship is. So can I ask you, are you a worshiper or are you simply an audience member? There's a big difference between the two. Would you stand as we close together? Gracious Father, Lord, you know our weakness, our frailty, our needs, and our hearts better than we. You know our tendency to, in small and subtle ways, despise your word to despise the means of grace you've given to quench your spirit. Would you forgive us, your people, where we've been guilty of doing this? Would you grant us strength to not only hear, but to respond in a way that honors and glorifies you, Father? Would you grant us grace by your word? Would you strengthen and cause us not to quench, but instead to fan into flame our desire to know you more and more? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.